0: Hello and welcome to the Brax Tax Podcast. This is a podcast for our youth group at Northridge Fellowship for our youth to be able to connect with our Sunday morning lessons in a little bit of a shorter form. Uh, Normally those lessons are about, uh, well, discussions are about 40 minutes, something like that, and this will be a little bit shorter of a form. If you're interested in listening to the discussion, uh, we have a link to the youtube video it's just mostly the audio with the whiteboard uh, results at the end Um, but this will be about 20 minutes instead of uh, 40 minutes Um, like i said a little bit more condensed Uh, but this week we were in matthew chapter 4 and we were in verses 1 through 11 and we were looking at the temptation of jesus in the wilderness and so i'll just read that passage for you Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So, just a few points. There's three temptations that Jesus has to go through. The first is around food. Now, Satan tempting somebody to eat something should remind us of another story, right? Genesis 3, in which... Satan tempts Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he's successful in that temptation. In this case, he's not. And another parallel between Genesis 3 and Matthew 4 is that both of Satan's temptations in Genesis 3 and Matthew 4 start with trying to introduce doubt. Um, In Genesis 3, Satan starts with, Did God really say? And in Matthew 4, in a sense... Satan is also saying, did God really say? Because he starts with, if you are the son of God, and if we look at the context of Matthew 4, we see that verse 37 of chapter 3, I'm sorry, 37, 17. um, Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So God has said something, and Satan's goal, in order to start his temptation, is to get us to doubt something about what God has said. And in this case, it's it's a temptation about identity. And I was just listening, actually, to a, a podcast um, by Russell Moore, and he was covering Genesis chapter 3, and he pointed out that um, Satan's temptation in Genesis 3 is about identity too because um, it's this question of, okay, who are you, Adam and Eve? Are you rulers of the world? In which case, you shouldn't listen to a snake because you're supposed to rule over the snake. Um And not be lower than an animal. So who are you there? And then the other question is, are you supposed to be human, a creation, or are you supposed to be like the creator and not have limits set on you by God himself? So um, Satan tries to get us to doubt the words of God. And in response, Jesus' answer to him is to go right to the word of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 when he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when he says that, I mean, we can look at what he means, every word from God. I mean, look at loaves of bread. Loaves of bread are words from God. God spoke everything into existence. So loaves of bread, in a sense, when Jesus says, "Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the God. It's um, from the mouth of God. That's kind of circular because, well, words from God and bread, that <laughs> bread are words from God. Apples are and and uh, honey is a word from God. And so all these words, physical things that we survive off of, um, are words from God. But um, he's also saying." every word from not God, not just the created um, things that come from God's mouth, but also the word of God. And when he says every word of God, listen to this, he means Deuteronomy. He means Leviticus. He means numbers and the genealogies and the numbers and measurements of scripture that a lot of times even, you know, just Christians tend to skip over. And Jesus is saying, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And and how that works, I think, is one, we live by them. We live according to them because life will be better for us if we live according to them. Deuteronomy 32, 46-47 says this, Take heart to all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but you are very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So, if we obey in general, when the world is working and functioning the way that God intended it to, then, well, life goes better for us if we obey God's words, every word that comes from his mouth. And then the second reason why we live according to God's words, obey his words, is because it really is life with God. You know? So if, if you live according to God's word and... You live in Afghanistan and you live according to God's word and and somehow it comes out that you're a Christian and you get killed. Well, then people might ask, how is it that life will be better if we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? It's because, and Jesus is pointing out a, a deeper reality here, is that because God is not concerned with just the physical life. He is concerned with the physical life, 100%. He is concerned about that, but he is also concerned with your spiritual life, with your relationship with God. And, and for Jesus, it's basically, okay, should he starve to death in the wilderness? That's a very real possibility. Should he starve to death in the wilderness or should he, I, I'm sorry, uh, and in so doing, obey God's word? Because it might be that, you know, God's word commands him to, fast until he dies, I don't think that's going to happen, and it doesn't happen in that context. But if that were the case, is that, if that's option A, and option B is disobey God, but have a full belly, Jesus would pick option A. He would rather die in obedience than live in disobedience. And I think the connection for us, just the application would be, do you justify sin when you feel like it's what your body really needs. And that could be food. That could be substances. That could be your sexual life. And ethics around that. Do you justify sin saying to yourself. This is something that I really need. God understands. Instead of trusting God to provide. Like Jesus trusts God to provide here. So that's the first temptation. The second temptation is the devil takes him to the holy city, sets him on the top of the temple, and says, if you are the son of God, note again the introduction of doubt in in Jesus's identity, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So first temptation, Jesus responds to the temptation by quoting scripture. Satan says, ah, I can Quote scripture too. Let's do that. So he does. And he quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. And Jesus' response is to quote Deuteronomy 6, 16, which is, you shall, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, I was wondering for a while, what does it mean to put the Lord your God to the test? Because I think um, there's a lot of commands in scripture and it's, it you know, do this and you will live. There's this idea of the obedience of faith. If if you have faith, you will act on it. it. You know, it. it almost seems like every prayer is a test of God. Will he answer? Will he not? Right? So what does it mean to test the Lord your God? Well, in the context of Deuteronomy 6.16, Moses says that you should not put the Lord, he's talking to the Israelites, and he says, You should not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at the waters of Massa. And that's uh, going, it's a reference from Exodus 17, in which the Israelites are going through um, some of their journeys and they're thirsty. And so they quarrel against Moses. And they ask for water and all that kind of Israelite stuff of, well, it's, it would be better for us if we would go back to Egypt. Why did we get let out here just to die in the wilderness? Um, and they're quarreling against Moses. And Moses says, why are you quarreling against me? Why are you putting the Lord your God to the test? And at the end of that story, um, it's interesting. One, just a quick note, is that quarreling and testing are very closely tied um, together in that story. But at the end of the story... Moses explains that they were testing the Lord by asking, um, is the Lord with us or not? So I think what testing is about, testing the Lord your God, I think it's that you put yourself above God as if you are the master and God is the slave. And you basically say, if God is with me, then he will do what I want him to do. So, and, and the problem with that is that we're taking God's promise of his presence Away from him, you know, away from his word, away from him calling himself Emmanuel, God with us. Away from his promises, like in Matthew 28. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. I'm with you every day, even to the end of the age. Um, So it's taking God's promise of his presence and his blessing away from his promises in his word. And it's putting it onto things that he's never said. Psalm 91, 11 and 12 is not about literally throwing yourself off of a building. It's not what that passage is about. It's about God's provision, God's care under obedience, right? So I think what it means to test the Lord is, and this is just applicable for us today. If you have a crisis of faith, every time God does not do what you want him to do, it might be that you're testing the Lord And, and, and you're, looking for his blessing and his presence through him doing things that you want him to do that he's actually never promised that he would do. Um, he won't promise you good grades. He doesn't promise you, um, you know, a happy family. He doesn't promise you, uh, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. He doesn't ha- promise you a marriage soon or later, uh, or that the marriage will even be happy. Um, he doesn't promise those things he a lot of times blesses us with those things but he doesn't promise those things and but what he does promise is his presence with us as believers and another note that i just think is really interesting is that um satan skips psalm 91 verse 13 and this is just i love this let me let me read this for you in the context for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. And so Jesus saying no to, to Satan's temptation is actually a fulfillment of the prophecy that you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot because Genesis 3.15, God promises that there will be a seed from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And so Jesus actually, in saying no to the temptation is actually fulfilling Psalm 91, not, he's not fulfilling Psalm 91 by jumping off of a building. So that's the, third te- or the second temptation. The third temptation, uh, Satan takes Jesus and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and his glory, and he says, you can have all this if you bow down and worship me. And again, Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy, and he says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve, which seems to be an allusion to Deuteronomy 6.13. Um, so just a couple notes here with this final temptation. So Jesus, in each temptation, quotes Deuteronomy. That's Moses uh, giving the law the second time before the Israelites are supposed to enter into the promised land. This is after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And now Jesus has spent 40 days in the wilderness. And during Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, there was lots of grumbling and there was a lot of listening to Satan. And during Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, he listens to his father and obeys the law. So Jesus, in the wilderness, proves that he is the true Israel, the true Israel that was called out of Egypt. Like Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son. And Jesus is the true son out of Egypt. And listens to his father in the wilderness rather than ignoring his word. He lives by every word that comes from his father's mouth. He's also the true and better Adam because Adam in the garden listens to Satan's words and eats. And Jesus in the wilderness does not listen to Satan, does not eat, trusts his father does not put the Lord, his God to the test. And he tramples the serpent underfoot. So Jesus is the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Israel. Now let's look at this, this last temptation. I think this has a lot of application for us. Satan shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory and offers it to Jesus. I think what's going on here is Satan has heard of Jesus' coming kingdom, and he's afraid. He's afraid that his rule will soon come to an end. So he comes up with a plan. He basically tells Jesus, your kingdom doesn't need to come. How about you skip all that extra work, and you just take what I have? Let's replace your kingdom with mine. Not that, instead this. Of course, it's all on the condition that he fall down and worship Satan. Because kingdoms are about worship. What you worship, who you worship. And in effect, Satan would still be the ruler. He would be new, Jesus' new father because he's, Jesus is supposed to worship his father. But now Satan would be his adopted dad. So what's the application for us? I I, I warn everybody who listens to this, youth or adult. This temptation, I think, is the temptation that we as Americans, American Christians, have, have listened to more than any other temptation in the modern era. It is looking at all the hard work it would take to usher in Jesus' kingdom and say, let's instead of doing that, let's replace God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, heaven's kingdom, with kingdoms of this world. America is not God's kingdom. No matter who is president, America is not God's kingdom, and it won't be. We await a kingdom. It's called heaven, and it is coming. And one day, heaven will be joined to earth at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And in the meantime, we are ambassadors of that kingdom. The church is the embassy of heaven. And we call to friends and neighbors and family and loved ones. And we say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 17. It is a better kingdom than what Satan could offer us. If Satan offers us America, if Satan offers us all the pleasures and glory of this world, we can say no as Christians because there is a better kingdom coming. Let's live for that kingdom and not live for any kingdom built by man, whether it's a president or whether it's ourselves.